0: Today's episode is brought to us by Umbra's sunglasses. They are armless. They have a cord. They're amazing. I love mine. I can take them anywhere. They won't fall off while I mountain bike. And if you would like to get a pair, go to Instagram, find Umbra's, O-M-B-R-A-Z, send them a message, and they're giving away three free pair this month. Something else i like to take with me anywhere is a couple packs of CS Instant Coffee. If I can't drag along all my coffee equipment, I do have that option to have incredible coffee in the backcountry or anywhere I go. Go to csinstant.coffee and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout for a discount on their incredible instant coffee.
1: My one-word answer is joy. We get joy from climbing, and that we can bring down with us never mind a paradigm for all these complicated life things just coming down filled with joy you can transmit that to other people
0: this is the adventure sports podcast trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life you're going to hear from explorers adventurers business owners and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual Hey folks, hope you're having a good week so far. Uh, today's episode is coming at us all the way back from episode 42 back in 2015, uh, when the year the year the show started, so a while ago, but we we are interviewing an uh, honestly a legend, Jerry Roach. Uh, Kurt is hosting this one and he goes into some of Jerry's achievements, but he is very well known as pretty much, he pretty much wrote the book on Colorado 14ers, literally and figuratively. Um, everyone who does 14ers, not everyone, but many people who do 14ers have a copy of his book called Colorado's 14ers, and uh, he has climbed all the seven summits. He's been all over, you know, all over the world climbing thousands, literally thousands of peaks. Pretty interesting guy and a uh, great interview, but I wanted to throw it all the way back to a really, really old one, a legend. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy, hope you're having a good week, and we would love it if you just shared the show, told your friends about it, um, you know, we're, we're, we're growing still with steady growth, it's really cool to see that every month we continue to, to hit new records, um, so continue to share, continue to tell folks, get the word out there, these are great stories that people need to hear. So yeah, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy.
2: Today, we have an amazing guest for you. Jerry Roach is one of the premier mountain climbers, not only in Colorado, but also in the world, but he's famed for all of his efforts in Colorado. He's written more than 15 books, climbing guides and other things to help mountain climbers find their way, and uh, his exploits are just amazing. So Jerry moved to Boulder, Colorado, as a lad in 1954. And he started rock climbing and bouldering then, but his climbing continued on until he had climbed all of Colorado's 14ers, and then he continued on to try some of the 13ers, and then he expanded until he has climbed peaks all over the world. He's climbed the seven highest peaks on the seven continents, including Mount Everest, including Denali, and several others. He continued from there, and he has climbed more than two 1,000 peaks in Colorado. He's climbed every ranked 13er, and those are all of the uh, mountains that are over 13,000 feet tall. He has done all of the highest points in all of the 50 U.S. states, so he's done the 50 summits for the United States. Jerry, welcome to the program. Well,
1: thanks for having me, Kurt, and howdy, folks.
2: Well, Jerry, it's a real honor for me to talk to you. I want to tell the guests, uh, one of my primary sports for the last 20 years or so has been climbing the 14ers and 13ers of Colorado. And Jerry's books have been very valuable to me in helping me figure out how to find a trailhead, which trail to take, which routes I want to try, and how safe or unsafe the various routes are, what the distances are, what kind of gear and equipment I'm going to need. I jokingly say, but it really is true, Jerry has probably saved more lives than anyone else in Colorado because his books have guided people to safety So, Jerry, thank you for being on the program, and thank you for your efforts to document the Colorado mountains for all of us out there who love mountaineering.
1: Well, it's fun, and I'm glad to share.
2: Well, Jerry, will you take a few minutes to tell us more about yourself and your connection to your mountaineering? Like Kurt said, I moved to Boulder
1: under the Flatirons in 1954. I was sixth grade, seventh grade, coming along. And one of the answers to the famous why climb question was there, staring me in the face every day when I was out in the schoolyard. It was the flat irons. And I looked up, and frankly, it was just instinct. Never mind all the fancy answers. Yes, the flat irons had to be there. I did have to see them. But it was instinct, and I just wondered if I could climb them. So off we went, me and a school buddy No equipment, no training, no knowledge. The only thing we knew about climbing was what we had seen in a cartoon where some crazy cartoon figure had a rope dangling freely into space and another person yelling crazy things. And there was a pick and a hammer attached to the cartoon figure. That's all we knew about climbing. You needed a rope, (laughs) you needed a pick, you needed a hammer. We had no idea what to do with any of those things. So we stole our parents' clothesline, which was cotton in those days, later tested at about 60 pounds. Oh, no. <laughs> and we borrowed a claw hammer from my dad's tool chest. We didn't have a pick thing, so we forgot about that part. Then we went up to the flat irons with no training. It's amazing that we survived those initial encounters with real rock, plenty steep enough to kill kill you. That's not how I recommend <laughs> starting, (laughs) no, (laughs) get training, all that good sane stuff. But we did survive. We were on the the sneak. We couldn't tell anybody what we were doing. Our climbs got bolder and bolder. We got a rope, Orlon. We couldn't afford nylon, so we bought Orlon at the Army Surplus Store and really scared ourselves. Finally, our parents did find out, as parents always do, and grounded us. I thought my climbing career was over, and it was for a little while. Then, of course, as parents often do, they relented and said, well, you can climb, but you got to get proper training. And in the 50s in Boulder, the best place to get training was with Rocky Mountain Rescue Group, where we literally learned the ropes from older people. Pretty soon, uh, we knew a lot about what to do with a rope. Not just climbing, but also rescue operations, in traverses, lifting, lowering, complicated maneuvers. And I look back on that, I think that was, uh, that was the place to start with real training, learning the ropes. It, literally, I think rock climbing is a great way to start a career in mountaineering. You've got to know how to tie every knot upside down backwards in the shower in the dark. That's sort of a joke, but uh, you get the idea. You've got to know how to set a rappel, to place an anchor, all those things. Uh, it's fundamental. In a nutshell, practice fundamentals over and over and over till they're, they're second nature. You don't think and you don't make mistakes. Famous quote, climbing is paying attention to things. Hmm. Uh, hang on to that one. So that was my beginning. The climbs, of course, got bolder and bolder. Uh, we were... Too young to drive cars, so initially the climbs were the Flatirons and El Dorado Springs. Then we got clever and learned how to bum rides up to Long's Peak and started doing routes on the east face of Long's Peak. I think I climbed Long's something like a dozen times before I ever did the keyhole route.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> we, we always went up the east face and down the north face or down some other way. Uh, and that was my grounding. That's how I I got into it. And from there, of course, the Indian Peaks were close. The we bum rides to the Indian Peaks and and the park. So that's where I started climbing the, the, the mountains. And there were trips. We discovered some other outfits. Of course, the Colorado Mountain Club was there. There was a loose-knit group, the University of Colorado Hiking Club. We met people. Back then, it was all word of mouth. Everybody knew everybody. A lot of gossip, a lot of chatter. There were no significant guidebooks. I remember the old original Orm's Guide to the Colorado Mountains. Those little stick maps in there. We'd pore over them, trying to divine the, the details, which, of course, weren't there. The, here's the standard description of climbing a mountain in Colorado. Go up the valley, turn either left or right, climb to the ridge, and follow the ridge to the summit. <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's what we grew up with you just had to know whether to turn left or right <laughs> and you knew how to. Have, you had to know how to get to the trailhead but uh, that's what we grew up with and wow. uh got more and more ambitious we took trips with groups to the various 14ers i remember doing calibra the now famous calibra back in those days we just threw our bags out at the base of the s ridge and Climbed the entire S-Ridge the next day, didn't think a thing about it. We did routes then, that some of which are not even in my 14er guide today. We just parked and went up the hill. It was very seat of the pants, but that's how we learned. Sometimes we went straight up the hill to our demise. Ah, and you learn. Here's a good story that uh, relates to the guidebooks. Orms was the guide man. Uh, living in Colorado Springs. One middle of the night, story, it was a dark and stormy night. It was raining. Bam, 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 bam. Orms uh, his door. Middle of the night, he puts on his bathrobe, goes out, looks out there, and there's about three or four climbers in ponchos. It's raining. He answers the door, turns on the porch light, and the guy said, Bob, look at this description you wrote. <laughs> he said, go up the wall to the ledge and turn left he fumbles for his glasses. He's barely awake, puts his glasses on, and he grabs the book, and he reads the sentence and the paragraph. He scratches his head, and he says, left? No, 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 I meant right. <laughs> <laughs> These guys had gone left and bivouacked, and it was miserable. And, uh, they survived. And I, I learned from that that it, it really matters what you say Fast forwarding a little bit to my own guides. I was a software engineer for decades, writing code where exaggerating a little perhaps, but it's a good illustration. If you type a comma instead of a period, you could fly a plane into a mountain. Yeah. Yeah, no code. doubt. The code to be absolutely precise and bug free and all those good things. So I had a background as a software engineer. And code is just another language. English is a good one, but code is another one. And I combined that code writing skill with my scientific bent and all my climbing and the knowledge that you you say left, you better mean left. (laughs) And I just started writing guidebooks later, decades later.
2: Well, I tell you, your guidebooks are are the premier. They're the best, and, and if anyone wants to take up Climbing in Colorado, they need to start by perusing your books, and you can learn so much that'll keep you safe, keep you on the right route. You'll know to go right instead of left, or left instead of right. And uh, you'll know the distances. You'll know how to watch for bad weather. You'll know just about everything that you need to know to at least have an aggressive hike up a mountain. So, Jerry, I, I appreciate what you've done in documenting uh, mountaineering for all of us.
1: Well, Thank you. I hope so. One comment is that my guides are where are where to. They're not how to. I do let my opinions leak in there from time to time, but frankly, the book is too thick already. If I kept putting in all kinds of opinions about safety issues, it would double in size and be unwieldy. Just be aware that it's a, a guidebook, not a how-to book um there's lots of other good how-to books in fact i thought i ought to write my own and uh, maybe i will that could be a nice future project
2: well there are a lot of of uh backpacking wilderness and even emergency and survival skills that people need to learn before they take off on these uh big mountains and so i agree it's worthwhile people need to get experience start small work your way up it's all fun and so there's there's nothing wasted in in learning those basic skills first
1: absolutely climbing today is centralized everyone wants to do longs Peak, mount rainier denali everest stop
2: They're
1: <laughs> not. They move on to some other sport well it's not that easy uh i didn't i did a much longer version of that decades in the making different era yes didn't have the money yes but uh fundamentals 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 I did Everest back in the days when we really had to climb the mountain. I take some pride in having led a portion of every part of the route, base camp to summit. These days, people clip in. I'm told, I have a hard time believing this, but I'm told there's fixed rope from base camp to the summit. Wow. Seven miles of rope. And the clients don't lead a step. The Sherpas lead everything, fix the anchors, fix the ropes cook the meals, all of that, carry the loads, my goodness, it's changed. I've been to Everest initially in 76, and again in 83 when I made the tippy top. Both of those trips, we had the climbers had to lead the route, do much if not most of the fixing. We carried our own stuff, we pitched our own tents, we cooked our own meals. I'm glad I had that experience, I wouldn't want to go there now with the current scene
2: it takes some of the the reality out of it doesn't it
1: yes i led a trek to base camp in 96 the year of the disaster and even then that's now almost 20 years ago that i I was blown away base camp was a mile long three hundred tents full of egos and pretense and blah 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 i I could not believe it so Mm. for myself i am glad i lived when i did now, having said all that, Everest is only one mountain. Jumping back to Colorado, people say, oh, the Fourteeners are crowded. Same basic complaint. All you have to do, people, there's nothing left. We're, we're, uh, I, I don't like the line, we're loving the mountains to death. No, 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 no. If we were loving the mountains to death, Colorado would look like Kansas. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't. There are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of mountains in Colorado. I would say most of which you can find solitude on. That's right. Uh, The 13ers come to mind. I got heavily, I climbed 13ers, of course, over the years, but it was only with my wife Jennifer that I got going hard on doing them all because she was doing them all, and she drug me out to do all these obscure low ones that I'd never heard of. I loved them. There were... (laughs) You had to figure everything out, just like the old days on Everest.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: There's no guide. You'd look at the map. Yes, we had good maps. Maybe you'd talk to a friend, maybe not. You'd look at the mountain and say, well, if a fellow had to climb that mountain, let's see, I think I'd go over this way, and you'd try it. And Sometimes it worked, and occasionally you had to make adjustments, try something different, come down a different way. It was real mountaineering, and I fell in love with that and rediscovered Colorado, if you will, and eventually finished all the 13ers.
0: I know this is an ad, but this is actually how I feel. Ombra's sunglasses are amazing. They're armless and they just have a cord that connects the frame around your head. And my son can't pull them off my head like he pulls my other sunglasses off. They won Backpackers Magazine gear editors gear choice of the year. They plant 20 trees for every pair they sell. And honestly, guys, I, I wear them every day. I take them everywhere I go. I just wore them cycling the other day on a long trip. It was, they just perform great. I love that there's no arms on them. I slip them in the pocket of my shirt or in my pants. I don't have to worry about breaking them. Fantastic glasses. I don't have to worry about them coming off if I'm wrestling around with my son or playing with my dogs. Uh, I, I really do enjoy them, enjoy them and I'm gonna be buying more for myself. For the foreseeable future. I mean, they're just, they've totally changed the way I look at sunglasses. You can check them out too at ombras.com, O M B R A Z.com. They make a great Christmas gift. I know you can't always make coffee the way you want to in a lot of the places that we go, you know, in the backcountry or on top of a mountain somewhere. But the good news is there is a great option for coffee in the backcountry, and it's C -S 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 S instant coffee. They make big pouches that fill, you know, 20 ounce containers with fresh coffee. Just put some hot water in there and you're good to go, or put cold water in there, and then you can have some cold brew. They use 100% compostable packaging. So just in case you dropped it, please don't, but if you did, it's going to biodegrade into the ground. It's great for backcountry travel or any time you just don't feel like breaking out the coffee maker, or the French press, or whatever. I actually use them all the time just in my house when I don't feel like making a big pot of coffee. So check them out at csinstant.coffee and use the code adventure at checkout to get a discount.
2: So that's no small feat. Tell our guests again, when you say all the 13ers, how many hundreds of peaks are we talking about?
1: The, the official magic number is 637 ranked peaks in Colorado over 13,000 feet. That includes the 14ers, just taking 13 peaks between 13 and 14,000 feet. There's 587 13ers.
2: 587 13ers. Right. You know, there are quite a few people that try to bag all the 14ers, and uh, the magic number is usually around 54. And you can describe to our listeners why that, I said usually, but yes. um, 54 is a lot of mountains and people spend a lifetime because of limited time um, trying to get their 54 peaks. But we're talking about, <laughs> you're doing about 700, and that's just the beginning of your portfolio. Where did you find the time?
1: Ah, well, that's a, a big question, which I get a lot. I worked. Uh, one big answer, part of that answer is I didn't have kids. I didn't, didn't have a family. I was able to devote weekends, every holiday, every evening, local stuff would run out in the evening, climb a rock or do a, a trail run. It uh, was, you learn how to, well, past tense, we learned how to play the game, maxing every available holiday, every available half day. We had whatever vacations. Well, then what about the bigger peaks? It gets complicated if you need a month off to go to Alaska for Denali or something like that. Frankly, I got the reputation in Round Boulder, oh, you're the guy who quits to go climbing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you you made your own sabbaticals.
1: Yes. uh, uh, I only did that after I'd exhausted all the other avenues Uh, once I... Arranged for a two-week trip to Alaska. We got trapped. It took three weeks. I came back, and I said, I played this card. You can only play this card once. Oh, we were trapped. We were going to (laughs) die. I'm lucky to be alive. Do I still have a job? Oh, mercy, mercy. (laughs) And I wiggled out of it. I just lost a a week's pay. Uh, Well, you can only play that card once. (laughs) You can only play the Everest card once. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, occasionally I would quit. Another piece of that answer is I discovered contracting. As my career evolved and it became less uh, career-centric where you worked for one company forever and ever, I discovered I could be a contractor. That worked very well for several years. where I could contract six months a year, make good money, and climb the rest of the time and time it out, plan, plan, plan. And that's how, frankly, a lot of my bigger trips happened back when I was still able to get a job. Now, one of my lines now is, I'm not retired. I just can't get a job anymore. Uh, (laughs) Two two things have happened. I'm playing this game I'm describing. And one day I woke up and two things happened. One, most of the software engineering jobs had, in fact, been shipped overseas. Two, I'd gotten old. (laughs) And age discrimination is alive and well in this country. Mm, that's they can't, I don't care what the banner on the wall says. They just don't hire you. Uh, I recently applied to Facebook and Google. I got the predicted response, which was silence. Mm. I've learned the hard way. You can apply for 10 jobs. You might get a reply from one. Right. Once you amass 10 replies, you'll discover that nine of those replies are see you later, goodbye. Then the one remaining reply may offer you a phone interview. Ten of those, you'll flunk nine of them. Ten of what's left, you might get a real interview, and you'll flunk nine of those. You get the picture.
2: So it's a one out of a thousand is the job that you land.
1: And basically you don't. Then the age thing, then the age card gets played, and oh, well, we hired this other person because they're more experienced. You know? Oh, by the way, they're younger. Yeah.
2: Jerry, this is, it's kind of fun you brought this up. I'd like to mention um, you obviously have a passion in your life. You love the mountains, you love climbing them, you love detailing them for others. And that passion was uh, just a huge part of what your career has been so far. And there's a new paradigm in the United States when it comes um, to looking for a job. It's hard to find a job, like you just described. That that really is the process. And people have to understand that it takes persistence and tenacity and patience to land the job you're looking for. But there's another alternative, and that is to chase your passions. And there's a whole new world of entrepreneurs these days who are saying, you know what, maybe that company's not going to hire me. So what do I love to do and how can I help others do that? And that's part of what you did through writing your books. And so I, I really encourage people to, to think about the new paradigm. Don't think that a corporation is going to be out there to uh, to pave the road for a, a easy, happy life. We have to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and uh, and hit the pavement. We've got to start doing that work ourselves.
1: Absolutely correct. I'm talking to a lot of friends. Everyone's got their own version of the story I just gave you. You have to step outside that corporate box and have your own idea, your own passion and try it. Nine out of 10 business starts fail. That's another bad statistic. but That doesn't mean you don't try.
2: Well, that means you only have to try nine things before you have a hit.
1: That's right. Well, <laughs> my uh, my books are interesting story. A lot of people say, oh, you're an author, you must be rich. Well, I have a whole speech about that. My 14er book sold pretty well, still is, although sales of the paper book are going down, down, down because of the internet. That's another subject. But the 14er book, by happenstance, has sold for me. It was no genius on my part. I just happened to write it at the right time. I caught the wave, if you will. I thought, well, this is great. If I could write 10 books like this, I'd quit my day job. So I wrote 10 books. Well, the, the truth is that the Fertiner book sells more than all my other books combined.
2: <laughs> 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 so there's your, there's your 9 to 1 ratio.
1: It is. It is. And you wonder wh- why it is that one ballet dancer makes it and 10,000 don't. You know, It's tricky business. Uh, you need a good agent, which I'd never have had. Anybody out there want to be my agent? Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's tricky.
2: You know what you've just described, though, that the per- perseverance and tenacity that's required in our modern world can be learned on these fourteeners, on these thirteeners, on these big peaks. Because, you know, most people find, some people are in better shape than others, but most people find they can get to the top of a 14 if they don't give up on the mental game because that's the hard part
1: yes the uh that's a great subject the the part of the answer to the great question why climb is that climbing is a great paradigm for the rest of life a mountain has much of the elements of life you've got this difficulty you've got political this permit that oops it's raining oops, the trail is closed, or the road is gated, or the weather's bad, and you've got to cope and deal with all of those things. And if you can figure it out on a mountain, you can apply those lessons to much of the rest of your life. People say, oh, climbers are nuts. They're just being taking unnecessary risks. They're crazy. No, 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 no. I think it's the other way around. Climbers do something that most corporate tycoons don't do. It's called risk assessment. Right. (laughs) Yeah, climbers by nature do risk assessment. They look at the weather. They look at the avalanche slope. They consider the fall that's below them. And they're usually willing to turn around if it's not right. I uh, joke perhaps that corporations were climbers, they'd, they'd be dead. Because
2: they <laughs> to take too many risks. <laughs>
1: they, they, do, they don't They do do a good job of risk assessment. I've seen it over and over and over in my my corporate years, right. such, as, such as they were. So I think climbers in many ways are some of the smarter people around. It's not just climbers. It's all, if you want to call it extreme sports people. I know you talk to a lot of different sports. So anybody that's hanging it out thinks a lot about what they're doing, and consequences. Sure. it's like parenting, parenting a kid, you've got to tell them, teach them consequences for their actions. And sometimes it's beyond what you can teach. they got to go out and hurt themselves. Hopefully they don't kill themselves. Well, we did. We made it back in the, the days. Big subject. Uh, I love it.
2: Could go on and on. Well, there are many lessons that we can learn from, from climbing these mountains. And I think that the biggest things... are are the memories that we form while we're doing it. Every mountain has its own personality and our interactions with those mountains. Um, Each mountain creates a new dynamic. It's like a conversation. And you remember the mountain as if it's a person almost. You know, this mountain tried to do this to me or, or had this feel to it. And we have all these memories, but we also are getting physical exercise. We're relieving stress. We're learning how to make wise decisions and do risk assessment. We're finding our own physical limits and even overcoming them. I mean, it's, it's an amazing sport that you do, Jerry.
1: Yes, it is. And that's uh, been my passion for about 60 years now. Wow. Give okay. A small hint about how old I am. You can figure it out if you want to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, hey, will you tell us an amazing story, uh, something that helped to just sell you on the sport?
1: Sure. Uh, back, back to Long's Peak, which was probably the first serious mountain that I was climbing on. We would climb rock routes on the east face. Rock routes always, or typically, if they're on the lower face, would end at Broadway. And you can traverse off from there and descend Landslide and be done for the day. A lot of rock climbs do that. You climb a face or a ridge and you get somewhere and you traverse off and go down. And you've climbed the route but you haven't climbed the peak. Right. Every time I got to Broadway and my partners rapidly learned this about me, I said, We're going to the summit of the mountain. We had to do the whole upper half of the mountain. Often we went on with the uh, upper Keeners, sometimes Notch Kuar. And I made it, it was just the passion to always go to the summit of the peak, no matter how hard the route was, we'd already finished. And that's where I learned the love of the high peaks was always going to the top and I love to spend as much time as possible on the summit maybe this is how I learned how to acclimate and get good at high altitude I doubt it's that simple but still I like to lounge on the summit I like to go fast as fast as I can and then spend whatever extra time I have on the summit and uh, they're all special oh yeah the summit is the people say oh the, the joy is on the slopes it has nothing to do with summit well it's both. Yes, the slopes are where you spend most of your time, but without the summit, you're not mountain climbing. You're just a walker, a hiker. That's true. But <laughs> be walking on the Colorado Trail or something. So I am very summit-oriented, moving a, a little different direction. I was attracted from that beginnings to bigger and bigger, higher, higher, bigger, bigger mountains, and that's how I got into climbing uh, so many of the big peaks up north in Alaska and the Yukon because they really brought it home. Those big peaks are a huge chess game. All the things I mentioned, you don't know and you don't always make it, but we evolved a philosophy and a technique that where we made it most of the time. A big component of that is something else that corporations don't do a very good job of, patience. We learned how to be patient. If you lunge at a goal, more often than not you're going to fail. If you lunge repeatedly, maybe you'll figure out how to make it with a lunge, but that's not a good tactic on a big mountain where there's lots of hazards that can kill you. Maybe it works on a skateboard or something where you're just going to scuff an elbow, but I don't recommend lunging on big peaks. doesn't mean you can't go fast and light. You, You have to plan that with extreme care. People say, oh, you can't control the weather. Well, hey, you can control whether you're there or not when the weather's bad. (laughs) That's true. You have a lot more controls than you think. Anyway, I love the big peaks for the the chess game aspect of it. And I've been pretty successful at uh, the big peaks. I went on to, I believe as near as we can know such a thing, that I was the first person to climb the 10 highest major peak in North America, went on to do three more 16ers and rounded out the list of the 13 highest in North America. But it wasn't because that's a list that I had to finish. It was just the peaks that I wanted to do. I like short lists. Uh, seven Summits comes to mind. <laughs> yep. When I finished the Seven Continent Summits, I think I had the record for taking the longest to do it, uh, 20 years or something. 22 years, I think it was.
2: <laughs> well, you weren't on those mountains for all 22 years, though.
1: <laughs> no, that was the elapsed time. That's fun.
2: Well, hey, will you tell us about a time that things did not go right?
1: Yes, I'll I'll be forthright. I've lost a lot of friends, climbing mean acquaintances and partners over the years, but only one trip I've been on did I experience a fatality from somebody on the trip that I was on. It was 1971 when we tried to climb the south face of Chacarrahu in Peru. Uh, At the time, the south face was unclimbed. We went at it. Uh, This was, if you remember, this was the year after the big earthquake in Peru that shook Vascaran and killed 20,000 people.
2: Wow. Uh,
1: And young guy, 80,000 people died across the region. Huge disaster. Uh, It was a year later. Who knows? the mechanics of some of these big features on the mountains. We've just had an earthquake in Nepal, brought down avalanches. Who knows what has weakened and is still waiting to come down. Anyway, we were high on the face. I was leading, traversed out above a fluting, took one axe blow too many, and the entire fluting gave way, thundered down, almost took out the camp below. And one of our team members was conked in the head. And later died. That was was bad. It was horrendous. Wow. Nineteen thousand feet. Didn't know if we were going to live or die. And long story. It's in uh, it's in one of my books. Uh, Ride the breath. That story is in. If you want the details. And that was pretty shaking. And uh, looking back on that climb, the climb wasn't my idea. It was somebody else's passion vision. Boy, knowing what I know now, I would do it very differently. I would have chosen a different gully, a different route, blah, 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 a lot of technical details. But it's those technical details that make the difference most of the time. It's the left-right thing.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: Sometimes it's fuzzy left and fuzzy right. It's not always so simple. It's choices. So that uh, that memory still haunts me. That was 1971. And those things will stick with you. I've had friends who've experienced too many of those accidents and just quit climbing. They gave it up and took up ultra running or something else that's still tough, but safer.
2: Sure. You know, I think not everybody is a good decision maker. Not everyone has those risk assessment skills. I think a lot of it is intuition.
1: Yes. and
2: There's a sense about it. And... I've climbed with people who you think, why did they do that? You know, and then you just realize, well, they didn't see what was coming if they were to do that. And it's, it's not for everyone. So there are some people that probably should take up distance running.
1: <laughs> yes, there are. Uh,
2: you know, if we don't stay alive to enjoy our sport another day, then what have we done?
1: There was lots of quotes. There's a one-liner for everything, of course. But uh, one of my... I've got answers to the why climb question that range from one word to a library. My one word answer is joy. Mm. We get joy from climbing, and that we can bring down with us, never mind a paradigm for all these complicated life things. Just coming down filled with joy, you can transmit that to other people. And a guidebook's a hard place to transmit joy. I should do that in other books, and I've tried, but darn, I haven't sold. <laughs>
2: but uh, Well, hey, let's get the word out about those books. If you will, tell us about um, some of your books and let us know what they're about so people can go find them.
1: Sure. My website is simple. It's summit S-I-G-H-T dot com. It's a big site, 300 and something pages, all kinds of fun things in there, but I, if I have what I call Bookland. Click on that and you'll get a menu of all my books, guidebooks, yes. But I've I've written a bunch of narratives, which is really what I wanted to write in the first place, was my stories. Well, the 14-year guide sold and blah, blah, blah. It took me a long time to get to my narratives. But I have in order a book called Transcendent Summits. Darn it, it's out of print, but uh, I'm going to fix that. The sequel is called Ride the Breath. Transcendent Summits talks about how and why I started, and a lot of times when I sign the book, I'll write in there, remember why you started, because when you started, you were full of joy and simple emotion, passion. It's good to remember that. The Transcendent Summits talks about those early years when we snuck off to go climbing with a clothesline. (laughs) Right, the breath was, was an active period later, including the Chakarahu story, when I Climbed around the world twice. Then I wanted to write the seven summit stories because that's popular and it's something I did. And so I created a trilogy, which I titled Beyond the Seven Summits. Turned into a trilogy for a couple of reasons. Took me a long time to write it and I put books out as I went along. It's in three pieces, pre-Everest, Everest, and after Everest. Each one a book of it stands on its own. The three of them tie together. Um, the Seven Summits, Seven Continent Summits, plus plus. By putting the word "Beyond" in the title, I was free to write about anything, <laughs> so I did. I put in a lot of other stories. My climb on Mount Foraker in 1975. My climb on Mount Blackburn in 77 in Alaska, and many other stories are in there. It's a it's a very rich. Series, the trilogy. Another book I did that many I think would enjoy is a history book on Everest. It's titled Why Everest. Subtitle is A Short History of the Pioneers. Two keywords short and pioneers. <laughs> I, I, I contend that more has been written about Everest than all other mountaineering literature combined. Uh, just a, a feeling, not a scientific proof. And yes, you can read all this history, but oh God, some of these old books go on for 500 pages. The typical thing is it takes, you don't reach base camp till page 100. <laughs> <laughs> and by modern standards, we don't have time to get through all that. So I took it upon myself to combine my code writing skills, my guide book writing skills, my love of storytelling, which I practiced in my other books. And I brought it together in Why Everest. To tell the history from the beginning through turned out 1983. Originally I was only going to write it through the first ascent, 53. But I found the history of Everest to be so rich and so much fun and so so telling in human history that I just kept going. Well, then the question was: where do I stop? I knew I didn't want to write the history right up to present day. Well, friend said. Well, that's simple. You're right until you stood on top, and that's the end. I said, oh, I can't do that. (laughs) Well, so I defined the pioneering period on Everest as as follows. Everest is a tri-pyramid peak. Three major faces, three major ridges. They had all been climbed. Everest had been done in all four seasons, including monsoon and winter. It had been done solo, true solo. Course, Mesner 81. Uh, it had been done without supplemental oxygen. And I considered those things to be all the major mountaineering firsts on that mountain. Prophetically, all those things were completed in 1983, the year I stood on top. So,
2: <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> it worked out.
1: <laughs> so I put a picture of myself on top on the cover, but you can do that when you self self publish. But it's fun. It's a good book. It's not long. A uh, friend of mine who said that he reads a lot of history books, he proclaimed it a good history book. So that's, that's another book I had fun with, Why Everest. I'd been out of writing for a while. I wanted to get back in. I thought, I've got to get back into the swing of it. So I treated writing like driving in a parking lot. There are no rules. So I just wrote whatever came to mind, and I created a little book of short stories called Orthogonal Adventures. And that was fun. Other stuff. What's an orthogonal adventure? Well, orthogonal is perpendicular. Translated to mountaineering, it means something went wrong with every outing. <laughs> and uh, what did we do about it? Well, there's lessons in that. So that all my books are there. Get some words from on my site summitsite.com, and you can order from me. A few of them are out of print. Uh, most are not. I plan to get the out-of-print ones back. One of my one-liners is, gee, if there were 10 of me, I could get twice as much done.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I I sometimes feel that way myself.
1: (laughs) I'm under a lot of pressure to reproduce my high 13er guide, and I'm working on it. But uh, then there's the economic uh, reality. It's a big effort, a thousand hours to do it up right and it just doesn't sell enough to justify the effort uh but i hope i do intend to do that and i am plugging away at it
2: anyway i I encourage everybody that likes to climb to consider the 13ers because of all the things that you've already listed for us you know it's it's more the true mountaineering experience and and uh, you get away from the crowds and and uh you can have you can have limitless mountains where you don't see another soul and you're out there really learning the mountain. So I, I think your, your 13ers book, um, it needs to be out there. People need to know that there's a, an alternative to 14ers, which is is a, even a bigger experience. The 13ers might be a few feet shy of the magic 14,000 feet, but um, it doesn't make them easier. And the altitude is about the same. And the route finding involved and what have you, it's a whole new challenge. A lot of the 13ers are far more difficult than the 14ers.
1: Correct. Um, The hardest 14er by its easiest route, well, you can debate which one it is, but whichever one it is, it's class four in difficulty. The 100 highest, I call them centennial 13ers, there's 50 some 13ers combined with the 14ers to make the 100 highest peaks in Colorado. The hardest centennial 13ers are class five. There's mm. three of them, Gallus, Kettle, and Jagged. So yes, there are harder 13ers. That's an interesting piece. Uh, they're also harder because there's not a beaten trail of them like there is on a lot of 14ers.
2: Sure.
1: Um, I found in the Himalayas and Andes that the lower peaks are often harder than the highest. Oh, so, the 14, 8,000-meter peaks, they're the toughest. Well, they are the highest, and there's the least oxygen there. But a lot of the 7,000-meter peaks are harder. Why? Well, because they're more eroded, and they're steeper, simply stated. And therein lies huge challenges. And I think to some degree, the same thing is true in Colorado. The 13ers are often more eroded and therefore steeper.
2: Well, back to the books you mentioned uh, before the show here, that you have some editions of your 14er book that Ah. are at a better price. Tell us what's going on with that.
1: Yes, I just in the last few months, my publisher for the 14er guide is Fulcrum, based in Golden, has been since day one. Uh, Fulcrum, for their own reasons, jumped the price of the third edition of my 14er guide from $22.95 to $29.95. A, seven, a whopping $7 jump, and I was aghast when I heard this. What? There go my sales. I'm shot. Well, the reasons, why did they do that? Well, it's a modern-day answer. They gave up trying to print the book in China. A lot of reasons behind that. Um, prices, a lot of things. Prices in China have gone up with new security issues, all that. There's more duty. There's more... Security issues, you got to jump through more hoops. And a big one is the slow boat from China really is slow. It takes weeks and weeks. One time I got frustrated and I said, Well, why don't you just FedEx them? And they laughed and said, Jerry, books are heavy. Do you know how much it would cost to to FedEx 10,014 books from China? It's ridiculous. So they gave up on China and shopped for a printer in North America and found one, solved all those problems, and you guessed it, the price jumped up seven bucks. Sign of the times. I think we can see more of that too. Anyway, I quickly, as soon as I learned that, I snapped up every copy of the book that Fulcrum had at the old price. So I have a good stock of third edition 14er guides at the old price, $22.95. I might even knock a dollar off of that. Um, so if you want to save a little, you can buy it off my website. Now, darn the luck with my site, you got to pay shipping, typically 6 bucks for priority mail, but you'll get it right away in mint condition and signed. And if you want me to personalize it, I can do that. Don't be shy. If it's a birthday present or a gift for somebody, I can easily personalize it. You can even tell me what to say, and I'll write exactly what you want. <laughs> tell this person, blah, blah, blah. Anything you want, within reason.
2: <laughs> oh, that's fun. So yeah. it sounds like you've written a lot of great books. I, You know, you've also outlined a book here in the podcast, and maybe some of your, your narratives touch on this, but life lessons that we can learn from mountaineering. I, I think you need to write that book, Jerry.
1: Well, I have been thinking about it. It's, it's, a, it's a how-to Maybe more than just a detailed guide to how to, it could be a storybook how to. Well, look, we did this wrong, and this thing happened, and my orthogonal adventures touch on that. This thing went wrong, and this is what we learned from that. Yes, I think there's a book there.
0: You bet.
2: Well, hey, how does mountaineering benefit others? Why why do you encourage people to do mountaineering?
1: Well, we've touched on some of that. You can transmit joy. Any, any activity that creates joy, I think, is worth pursuing. Various arts, music certainly can. Most art forms are created to transmit joy. Darn the luck, most art forms don't make it in our society. They're relegated to, the people that do it anyway, are relegated to a cheap, or poorly paid lifestyle. We hear about the people that make it, For every one of those, there's 10,000 that don't. But joy is a big piece of it. Beauty. If we don't have beauty and joy and passion in our lives, I think we devolve. If it's all about the corporate bottom line, next month's paycheck, I think we're going backwards.
2: I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
1: So that's a big component. And some of the other more technical aspects, the, the paradigm for life, these big peaks, tell you a lot. There are times you have to turn around. Um, many times. Turning around is always an option. People think that Reinhold Mesner, all he ever did was just march up to the top of all these great peaks. What a hero. Reality is, if you read the fine print in his books, he turned around a lot. About 50% of the time. Well, that's the life lesson. It's not as easy as just being a hero. You've got to learn how to play the game.
2: Oh, yeah. That's that's excellent. So, finish us up here with a funny story about climbing.
1: Well, let's see. Here's one. Simple one. Sometimes simple is better. A group of four of us took off one day in a storm to hike up Bear Peak above Boulder on the trail. It's just a good hike to do on a stormy day. One of the four guys... Dan, said he wanted to traverse over to South Boulder Peak. Well, the other three of us didn't want to do that. He was insistent. So he took off to run over to South Boulder, top speed. And we waited, we chatted. And pretty soon, <laughs> we saw Dan appear on the rocky ridge south off the summit of Bear Peak. His head would pop up over a boulder, and he'd look at us, and, I'm like, oh my God, what are they doing? He had a wild countenance Then he'd climb some more and he'd pop up on another boulder and finally he scrambled up to us and he blurted out how did you guys get over here so fast <laughs> 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 and uh, we didn't know what he was talking about but then we figured it out and we played along and we said dan well we just followed the trail <laughs> and, and uh, Played it. We strung him along, strung him along, and he was just, he was gasping for breath. He could not believe that we were calmly sitting on top of South Boulder Peak. And he'd gone so fast and we'd beat him. Well, <laughs> he'd gotten completely turned around, 180 in the fog, and had reclimbed Bear Peak. <laughs> Finally, b- busting out of laughter, we had to break it to him. Said, Dan, this is the summit of Bear Peak. We haven't moved. And at first, he couldn't believe us. He said, ah, South Baller Peak. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, damn, look, look, here's the, the register canister. Here's the rock. We were just, you were just here. We haven't moved. We've been sitting here. You got turned around in the fog. You know, long silence.
2: <laughs> oh, that's good.
1: <laughs> and he had to realize he'd gotten completely turned around in the fog. Well, there's a lesson there. It was a funny thing. No harm done. We hiked down together laughing, but yeah, you learn from that one way or another. And there's lots to learn. I've been turned around 180 in the fog. It's, uh, it's real. Anyway, a lot of fun.
2: Oh, you bet. I think people get turned around 180 in the fog commonly in their lives and it may not be on a (laughs) mountain. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Very good. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for your time today and to our listeners out there. Um, Jerry Roach is uh, just an amazing guy. Pick up his books and find out about what this sport you know, is all about. It's, it's an amazing adventure, and it's worth spending a lifetime on. Uh, I can personally attest to that. Joy, beauty, passion, you mentioned those things as reasons, and those are great reasons. So until our next episode, get out there and have some fun.
1: Be safe.
0: First of all,